Well, hi there. It's been a while. How you been? And welcome back to Candidate Me, the podcast which lifts the talking point veil to show you the art, science, and shenanigans of real campaigns. In case you need a reminder, I am Tom Bullock, Charlotte's only official, not real, candidate for mayor. But for my pretend campaign to stand a theoretical chance, I need some specialized help. So ask away. Someone who has a superpower. Meet Catherine. My name is Catherine Smith, and I am a voice talent. You probably don't know Catherine, but you likely recognize her voice. She's a professional narrator, a voice actor or talent, if you prefer. Her specialty? I voice all kinds of ads, from high-energy retail uh, work to lower-scale uh, e-learning and um, narratives. But wait, there's more. And I also do a lot of political ads during the political season. Catherine's superpower is making you love something, hate something, think something, or do something simply by how she says something. Take the catchphrase for this podcast. Candidate me. Fake candidate, real news. Or if we get on her bad side. Candidate me. Fake candidate, real news. Yep. She's good at what she does. And remember, Catherine, we're going to get back to her in a bit. With Halloween just around the corner and the November election right behind it, it seems fitting that we explore a true dark art of campaigning, the political ad. This time of year, they are inescapable, sometimes inexcusable. They can make us laugh, make us angry, but when they work, they make us vote for a specific candidate. And that is what we're delving into this episode, how political ads are made and how you can spot the tricks and tactics. That have psychological basis, that, that almost primal responses that we deploy. Think of it like a clove of political garlic to ward off the evil ones. This is Candidate Me. Candidate Me, Episode 8, Add It Up. And in case you're a number stickler, yes, I'm counting the bonus episode, even though I didn't give it a number. So this is actually the first part of a two-parter. Next episode, we're going to make some fake ads to go along with my fake campaign. And we'll also get back to what's happening in the real race for mayor and city council. But before we can do that, we need to learn everything we can about how these ads come to be. Now, I talked to a lot of people doing my research for this episode, but few were as gut-churningly blunt as Brian Franklin. One of my friends and a mentor to me once told me that politics is vomit. And, <laughs> and people don't, they don't really want to see it or hear it. They're forced to. And then they have to react to it. Brian is the founder of Impact Politics, a consulting firm based in Florida. He and his team have worked on campaigns across the country. Brian Franklin's job is to give you that vomit, in his words, mind you, and make you react to it. And yes, he has a preferred political flavor, Democrat. The, the industry doesn't really 
allow for many bipartisan consultants. And I'm sure you can guess why. There's just so much distrust on either side, especially now. But regardless of ideology, the basics of ad making, the theory and science of what makes it work, goes back a long, long way. To Aristotle and his failed bid for Athens City Council back in 329 BC. Sorry, I couldn't resist. But the Greek philosopher really did identify three concepts at the core of persuasion in any form. Logos, pathos, and ethos. Appeals to logic, emotion, and trust. He called this the rhetorical triangle. Over the centuries, these ideas were parsed, re-examined, refined. And when it came to political ads, the triangle began to change shape. Logic fell out of favor leaving just trust and emotions to build on. And Brian Franklin says history has shown one side of this line is winning out. There is something stronger about fear than belief. Lord knows we see this in society today. But in ads, it's easier to create fear. It's easier to create doubt because belief is and faith in a, in a particularly in a politician, is harder to come by. The benign-sounding rhetorical triangle was replaced with a more evocative concept, propaganda. I know, when our modern ears hear propaganda, our brains tend to yell out, whoa there, that's the stuff of Nazis and Soviets and bad, bad people. But there's more to propaganda than what we've been conditioned to think. Set motive aside and look at the tools. You'll see it is alive and well in political ads and has been for some time. There are loads of scholarly works out there to prove this. And there's this amazing educational film on propaganda and U.S. politics from the early 1950s or thereabouts. Shot in black and white, this film is like many of the era, somehow both earnest and creepy. There's a link to the film on this episode's page at WFAE.org if you want to see it. If not... Let me describe it this way. It's as if June Cleaver and George Orwell didn't exactly leave it to Beaver, and this popped out nine months later. Enter the curious, if not somewhat dim-witted, Chuck. I've been following the campaign. So much was said on both sides. I'm confused. How can you know what to believe when there's so much propaganda? Perhaps I can help you, Chuck says the kindly gentleman who just happens to be the campaign manager of the winning candidate. And he's come prepared with books and posters and a list of the main techniques. Glittering generalities, transfer, name-calling, card-stacking, testimonial, plain folks, and bandwagon. Some of these, like name-calling and bandwagon, are self-explanatory. Testimonial and plain folks, these are more or less the same thing. Someone saying they're voting for a candidate, and you should too. The difference is status. Are they a celebrity or otherwise well-known, or just plain folks? Glittering generalities and transfer can also be grouped together. Words or phrases broadly seen as positive, but lacking a solid definition, that is a glittering generality. Think words like prosperity. Who's against that? But what does it really mean? Transfer is pairing the candidate with broadly positive symbols, like the flag, in order to get people to transfer or associate their feelings about one to the other. Finally, card stacking. This one is key. 
This is when an ad cherry-picks a fact or part of a fact or, frankly, just mischaracterizes a fact in order to play up a candidate or attack an opponent. These seven concepts are tried and true, the science and philosophy broadly behind political ads. Of course, the science goes much deeper. There's a whole branch of academia that studies this, political psychology. But we should know it too, at least according to that incredibly strange campaign manager from the film. Your study of propaganda is important not only to you, but to me and to the world. Thus endeth the lesson, with this caveat from ad maker Brian Franklin. I would take issue with the idea that all advertising is propaganda. I mean, I think if you believe that this information is critical to the voter's understanding of a person, then, then I would argue that it's education. Noted. Now, we've just gone through a lot of information. Take a moment, catch your breath. Coming up next, we'll go from the theoretical to the practical. The soup-to-nuts story of how campaigns come up with the ads we love and love to hate. You're listening to Candidate Me. All right, then. If my campaign for Charlotte Mayor was a serious one, I would have been playing the ad game for quite some time by now. It's not, so I haven't. But let's go back and pretend time and work through what I should have been doing on the ad front from the beginning. Because, as Brian Franklin explains, political ads change over the life of a campaign. Initially, campaigns, all they want to do is build their list. Which means digital ads, which are trying to get people to sign up, give their names, addresses, emails, and phone numbers to the campaign. They want to drive people in there. They want donations. And it's not so much about persuasion. This is called the acquisition phase. Yes, campaigns can buy these lists, but this is better, more organic, more effective. How do you structure an appropriate or an effective, you know, acquisition ad? What are the components? Well, you want to start with something that is, uh, is going to hit an emotional trigger. Sound familiar? That emotional trigger might be a petition. So, you know, sign a petition to help save uh, Puerto Rico, for example, or sign a petition against bump stocks or something that's in the public sphere at the moment that people are obviously going to react to. It might be in, in our, you know, in the case of Democrats, it might be fighting for women's rights. And so you would craft ads that speak to the concerns of your audience and that are consistent with your candidate's positions. And they'll do something else, too. If you give up your email address, campaigns will gladly deploy another form of political advertising, legal spam. And I know this will shock you, but those in Congress making the rules conveniently left out political email in prohibitions for spamming people. This round of ads is designed to build candidate name recognition, but more importantly, to bring in money. Get enough of that and you move on to the next round in the ad game, positive and negative ads to get people to vote. And here's something to ponder. I think it's more difficult to create a positive ad. And Hmm. this is just, you know, this is my opinion, but 
It is far easier, and I think historically it's been proven that it's easier to run a no campaign than a yes campaign. All ads cost money, and clearly TV ads top that list. So rather than just run with something and hope, good campaigns will test their ads the old-fashioned way, a poll. We'll test our own positives, we'll test our own negatives, we'll test our opponents positive and we'll test our what we think they will be uh and and we we test what we know to be the opponents negatives we will look at the audience responses and see how the vote shifts they'll take what seems to work and test it some more online ads are much much cheaper than blitzing the airwaves so that is a good place to start on banner ads we are often dealing with either rotating or animated ads of some kind where really maybe a sentence and a half or, or two at most. And it, it just has to be readable and it has to be glaring on the page. And sometimes it, you want something that looks out of place because otherwise it's just kind of blend in. And, sorry folks, these ads need to be hard to get rid of. Those ads are so obtrusive, you will have trouble finding the X to, to close out of them. But they're both effective and annoying, right? And annoying... In digital advertising can be fine because you're only really expecting a small percentage of people to click on the ad anyway. Once a message has been tested and found to be effective and the campaign has enough cash to spend, only then do the TV ads get made. And when they're negative, they're pretty easy to assemble. You know, taking the worst picture of your opponent is often a technique that's used, but occasionally can backfire on you if you really, you know, if you really overdo it. But, you know, dark contrast on negative ads, you know, red and bringing the dark out, essentially. uh, Those are things that have psychological basis, almost primal responses that that we, we deploy. So primal, in fact, that Brian Franklin believes elementary school students could probably make a modern political attack ad. You could take a group of third graders and ask them to create a negative TV ad, and they would instinctively create ones that are dark. And if you ask them to put the music on the, on the back, they'd probably put some kind of scary music. I, I, you know, it's, it, it, it's very intuitive. But there's still one piece that's needed, the finishing touch, the close. For the message doesn't work without the right messenger the right voice to read it. Uh, Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for noticing. Which brings us back to Catherine Smith, because this is when ad makers pick their voice talent. Sometimes campaigns will go directly to her, but more often than not, ad makers will go through a voice talent agency, which means people like Catherine start off knowing very little. Sometimes you honestly don't know who you're working for until you get the script, and that can these days can be literally about five minutes before the session. So she gives the script a quick once-over and starts recording. Usually a client will allow us to have a first take that is our interpretation of what we think the text is saying, um, whether that be sort of a dramatic, powerful read like, John Brown believes in education, you know, something like that. Or if it's a more personal approach, John Brown believes in education. Again, this first read is her best guess at what the campaign is looking for. It may be right or way off. 
So the ad makers are listening in, in real time, and they clearly know what they want. So coaching ensues. A client may say, you know, say that like you're just shaking your head, like, can you believe the world we're in today? Or um, can you say that like you, you, you and everybody else should be appalled by what this politician is doing? Um, and so they'll make those sorts of references that help lead you into the kind of read they're looking for. Once she nails it, the session ends. Her voice is then layered over music and images. The political ad is complete. This is something Catherine has done more times than she can count. Oh, gracious. Hundreds. Hundreds, for sure. But I'm curious, have you ever got done reading an ad mm -hmm. and you were just like, oh, that's slimy? Yes, I have had that. The, the, the slimy political ads are really, really hard. Um, I, I'm, I'm an empath by nature, um, and it makes it really difficult to um, step back from this job that is something that I love to do. Um, and, you know, as both a person and as someone who takes in these ads, let's talk about facts Let's talk about real-world issues, and um, let's keep some of that other stuff off the table. That's my personal preference. But she does put that personal preference aside for a very real-world reason. Catherine Smith, like the vast majority of voiceover artists, is a freelancer. If she doesn't work, she doesn't get paid. And political ads are a reliable source of income. But she now wonders if that paycheck is worth the toll. It, it has become difficult the last few years to work heavily in the political realm um, because the, the ads are definitely going more negative. Um, they are becoming um, more polarized, um, more they're absolutely wrong, I'm absolutely right. And I, I don't think many things are ever that clear cut. And, uh, and I think if we can really concentrate on what's best for the people of our country, then hopefully we can really stick to issues. All right, for the next episode, we're gonna have a bit of fun. We're taking all of what you've heard here and we're going to make some political ads of our own. Plus, we dig back into the local races and bring back our favorite two political hacks for our completely biased political panel. And we'll answer more of your questions. If you haven't already sent one in, please do. Just go to WFAE.org, find Candidate Me under the podcast tab, and look for our gray question box. I'm Tom Bullock, and this is Candidate Me. Candidate Me.